Welcome to Zoinks, the podcast that explores creepy mysteries, spooky encounters, and all things strange and unusual. Tonight, does Overton House carry a curse? And why have so many dogs leapt to their deaths from its bridge? Overton House sits in West Dunbartonshire in Scotland. It started life as a farmhouse, but James White purchased the property in 1859 with plans to demolish the farmhouse and build a country retreat. He hired architect James Smith to handle the project, and construction began in 1860. The house was complete by 1863, but before construction finished, Smith died suddenly at the age of 55. Smith was father to Madeline Smith, who was accused of murder in 1857. After her ex-lover had blackmailed her, Madeline was spotted buying arsenic shortly before said ex-lover was found dead from arsenic poisoning. Madeline was ultimately found not guilty, but the trial took its toll on the family, and public opinion was not friendly to Madeline, who ultimately had to change her name and relocate to the States. The stress of his daughter's trial is said to have contributed to Smith's premature death, the first unfortunate event to be linked to Overton House. The house was finished without Smith in 1863, although the White family had already been living there for a year by that point. James White died in 1884, and the house passed to his son John, although he wouldn't do anything with the house until his mother passed away in 1891. John then moved in, and set to work on his plans to expand. He acquired more land, but the plots of land he now owned were separated by water, so he had a bridge constructed to link them. John White died in 1908, and his grieving widow continued to live at the house until she died herself in 1931. The couple had no children, so the house passed to a more distant relative, Douglas White, who gave the house to the people of Dunbarton in 1938. The house then underwent many different uses, including a long stint as a maternity hospital. In 1978, it came under the control of a religious group known as the Spire Fellowship, before passing to a missionary group called Youth with a Mission in 1981. Youth with a Mission would operate out of Overton House until the Christian group left in 1994. Later that year, a 32-year-old man named Kevin Moy threw his two-week-old son from Overton Bridge before trying to climb over the parapet and throw himself to his death too. He was dragged back to safety by his wife and taken to Overton House, where he attempted to cut his own wrists before he was arrested by police. Moy's son would die in hospital the next day. It would later be revealed that Kevin Moy had been suffering from delusions that he was the Antichrist and that his son was Satan. He was convinced his son would infect humanity with a world-ending virus, and was convinced that he needed to kill him to save the world. 
Moyer would ultimately be found not guilty of the murder, as he was found to have been mentally ill at the time of the crime. But, despite the many tragic coincidences in Overton's orbit, the thing that would shoot the house and its adjoining bridge to worldwide notoriety would be something much, much more bizarre. In 2005, came the first online reports that multiple dogs had leapt to their deaths from Overton Bridge. And a year later, a Daily Mail article brought this to much wider attention. The details on this phenomenon vary wildly, with reported numbers being anywhere from 50 to 600 dogs. But what all sources do agree on is this. Dogs who cross the bridge often grow agitated and leap up over the wall of the bridge falling 50 feet to the embankment below. Some have said that a scent must be attracting the dogs, while others think there's a more supernatural explanation, such as the ghost of grieving Lady Overton, now known to locals as the White Lady. Some have said that a scent must be attracting the dogs, while others think there's a more supernatural explanation, such as the ghost of the grieving Lady Overton, who is now known to locals as the White Lady. But what is the truth? We'll discuss theories right after this. Weird Science This is Weird Science, the segment where we discuss bizarre news from the world of science, or just discuss some mind-boggling facts about our universe and everything in it. Since NASA just landed a new rover on Mars, I thought it would be the perfect time to talk about the planet. There's so many amazing facts about Mars, but the thing that really captures everybody's imagination is the idea of terraforming the planet so that humans could one day live there. It's been a staple of science fiction for decades. But is it really possible? Well, one of the main barriers is the low temperature on the surface of Mars as well as the chemical makeup of the atmosphere and the atmosphere's low pressure, which is less than 1% of sea level pressure on Earth. The silver lining of climate change here on Earth is that it proves pretty conclusively that humans can affect great change to a planet's environment. So there are certainly ways that Mars's atmosphere could be changed for human use. Greenhouse gases like chlorofluorocarbons, that's CFCs, the kind of chemicals that you use to find in things like hairspray, they could be released into the atmosphere to begin a warming process. And as the planet heats, it would free up carbon dioxide that is currently locked in ice, and that would further contribute to the warming. If the heating of the planet then resulted in liquid water, we might be able to begin growing plants in order to add more oxygen to the atmosphere. But... Even if we prove successful in heating the planet and changing the chemical makeup of the atmosphere, we would still need higher pressure at the surface, and that's going to require a much more massive atmosphere than Earth's, as Mars's gravity is only about 38% that of Earth's. Then there's the lack of a magnetosphere. Here on Earth, the planet's magnetic field protects our atmosphere from solar storms, but a planet like Mars has no such protection making the atmosphere much more vulnerable. We would probably need that protection to have any hope of a stable atmosphere over a long period of time, otherwise the atmosphere might just be worn away and disappear into space. So, how do we make that happen? Well, Earth's magnetic field is generated by electrical currents in the liquid outer core, 
created by the rotation of the planet. Weak magnetic fields have been detected on portions of Mars, indicating that the planet did once have a functioning magnetosphere, which ceased to be active several billion years ago. Some ideas have been proposed to restart Mars's core and get it generating magnetic fields again, such as a nuclear detonation deep within the planet. But, of course, by this point we're deep in conjecture and entering sci-fi territory. In reality, something like restarting the core of a now-dead planet would probably be beyond any technology we could develop. But then, who knows? If, however, We presume for the sake of argument that we can restart the core, change the atmospheric pressure and composition, release some liquid water and grow some food so that humans can live and breathe on the surface of Mars. Well, there's still the problem of gravity. No matter what we accomplish on Mars, the lower gravity will always be an issue for our Earth-grown biology. Our bodies are designed to withstand the forces you find here on Earth. And we know from analysing the health of astronauts who visit the International Space Station that a lack of gravity can have pretty serious health effects. Because of this, if we ever travel to Mars, it's likely that the individuals will be limited to short trips before returning to Earth at the earliest possibility to minimise the negative effects. Or, alternatively, if we find that we're able to adjust and adapt to the gravity of Mars, It's possible that the dangers of changing the gravities our bodies live with will render any settlement on Mars a permanent relocation. And if that's the case, it brings up a whole load of moral questions. How do we feel about permanently splitting off a group of humans? If they successfully colonize and go on to have children who have children who thrive on the red planet, how might that change their biology? How might our two groups differ? and differentiate as hundreds of thousands of years pass with 250 million miles between us. Incidentally, these questions form the basis of a novel that I stumbled across in one of those donation bins, and I highly recommend it. It's called To Open the Sky by Robert Silverberg, and it explores what happens to human society, biology, and religion when the species is split into three factions spread across the solar system. I'm glad I stumbled across it, so if you can find a copy, check it out. And of course, if you find all of this interesting, I recommend getting online and looking into it further. I am no scientist, and a lot of this is way beyond my level of understanding. Everything I've given here is just an explain like I'm five cliff notes version, and my understanding isn't necessarily scientifically accurate. But it's all very interesting to think about, isn't it? Anyway. Now that we've had a breather, let's dive into some theories about what might be happening at Overton House. So, when discussing what's actually going on with the dog suicides at Overton Bridge, I think there's one key question that we need to start with. Are the dogs jumping? Or are they falling? By that, I mean, are the dogs leaping over the wall with intent? Or do they jump up, lose their footing, scramble, and fall? After all, you have to think about what the world looks like from a dog's point of view. The wall of the bridge is as tall as they are, if not taller. 
We can look over the wall and see the fall below, but a dog, of course, cannot. So how can they know that there is a fall on the other side? From the point of view of a dog, the wall may look like a raised surface, one they attempt to jump on, expecting firm footing, and it's only after they've landed that they discover the wall quickly tapers off into a 50-foot drop. This question has been more or less answered by the current owner of Overton House, Bob Hill, who said in 2019, The dogs catch the scent of mink, pine martens, or some other mammal, and then they jump up on the wall of the bridge, and because it's tapered, they will just topple over. Hill has reportedly witnessed many of these dog suicides, and his eyewitness account certainly seems to correspond with the idea that the dogs are falling unintentionally. So the next question is, why do these dogs jump up to the wall at all? Well, as you heard from Bob Hill, it's widely speculated that a scent is causing the dogs to jump. Mink has long been said to be the source of this scent, although for a long time locals refuted this, saying that there were no mink in the area. But the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds and Wildlife, however, has since proven that mink do live in the area. And when an animal behavior expert called David Sands decided to test whether the mink might be responsible, the results were fairly conclusive. Sands arranged for a small number of dogs to be released in a field in which three different animal scents had been placed. Out of eight dogs, seven immediately headed for the scent of mink, while one dog was attracted to the scent of squirrel. While that's not the most scientific or the most tightly controlled experiment, it does seem to indicate that there could be something to the mink theory, and, combined with all the other information we have on this case, I think we can say with some certainty that, barring any new information coming to light, the mink did it. What about the white lady, the grieving spirit of Lady Overton that is said to walk the grounds of Overton House? Well, back to Bob Hill, who explained in a 2014 documentary that he met a group of men who claimed to be responsible for the story of the white lady. When they were kids, they worked at the quarry, Hill said, and they decided on Halloween that they were going to scare all of their mates, so they arranged to put a wire from the top of the tower down to this side of the bridge, and they rigged up on a pulley a white sheet. We can't know for certain that the story truly originated with these boys. I suspect it's been floating around for much longer than that. But it is, of course, just a story. An urban legend about a creepy old house that's spread around as these stories often do. And Kevin Moy? Well, in a way it would be nicer to believe that there was something supernatural going on there. But unfortunately, he was, of course, just a man suffering from delusional episodes, and that proved to be devastating. There's little information about what happened to Moy after his trial, but hopefully he's been given sufficient support and treatment and is doing okay. All in all, Overton House is a great example of the power of human narratives. We're naturally attracted to stories and to finding patterns and meaning where perhaps no such meaning exists. Overton House has been struck by multiple unfortunate coincidences and tragedies, but the curse, the haunting, that's just our human minds trying to piece together the unrelated and weave it into a narrative. We're human. It's what we do. And on that note, it's time to discuss this month's Ghostly Encounter. 
Tonight's ghost might not be one you've heard of, but she's definitely one you've seen, as our spooky encounter for this episode concerns what is probably the most famous ghost photograph ever taken. The image in question was created by two photographers from Country Life magazine in 1936, while they were photographing a country house called Raynham Hall, which had, for many years now, been said to have been haunted by a ghost known as the Brown Lady. Hubert C. Provend and his assistant, Indo Shearer, were setting up a shot of the home's main staircase. Provand was under the blackout cloth, setting up the camera, when Shearer reportedly saw a vaporous form gliding down the stairs. He called out to Provand to take the picture, which he did, and upon development, they found that they'd captured the ghostly outline of a person descending the stairs. Immediately, a debate began over the veracity of the image. Some have suggested that it's an intentional hoax, a smear of grease on the lens of the camera. Others say that it's a double exposure, and point to the bright reflections in the image which might be indicative that the film has been exposed twice. There has never been any conclusive proof that the photograph was a fake, however, which leaves it a matter of debate even now, 85 years later. But regardless of the legitimacy of the photo, Raynham Hall certainly has a spooky history. The first ghostly sighting at Raynham Hall came in 1936. Colonel Loftus was staying at the house for a Christmas gathering when he and a fellow guest caught sight of the ghost walking away in her signature brown dress. Loftus saw the ghost again the next night, this time from the front, and was struck by the unnatural glow of the figure's face, which highlighted the two empty sockets where the ghost's eyes should have been. The next sighting came a year later, in 1936, when Frederick Marriott was staying at Raynham Hall. He demanded to stay in the room in which hung the portrait of Dorothy Walpole, who was said to be the identity of the spirit. Marriott was convinced that the ghost was actually the work of thieves, and he was determined to prove his theory correct. He slept with a revolver beneath his pillow and waited for the ghost to show itself. Nothing happened on the first two nights, but on Marriott's third evening in the house, as he was returning to his room after a conversation with two fellow guests, he spotted the light of a lantern moving towards him in the hallway. Marriott, who had been getting ready for bed and was in a state of partial undress, assumed it was one of the ladies checking on the children and moved out of sight. But he watched as the figure moved down the hallway, and when she got closer, he recognised her as the brown lady. Before Marriott had even drawn his weapon, the spectre had stopped and turned to face him, revealing her glowing face, her empty eye sockets, and a large grin. Marriott fired his weapon, at which point the ghost vanished into thin air, leaving the bullet lodged in the wall behind her. So, who is Dorothy Walpole, who now supposedly haunts Raynham Hall? Walpole is the sister of Robert Walpole, the first Prime Minister of Great Britain, and the second wife of Charles Townsend, a man reported to have had quite a temper. Rumour says that Walpole was found to have had an affair with notorious ladies' man Thomas Wharton, and that in response, Townsend locked her in her room at Raynham Hall, 
where she stayed until her death in 1726. 300 years later, we're unlikely to ever know how true these rumours were, and we're unlikely to ever know how much truth there was to the reported sightings of the brown lady. As for the photograph, well, what do you think? That's everything we've got for you today, but we'll have another mystery for you in the next episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, we have a whole website where we publish articles about all things spooky, from the supernatural to the unexplained. You can find that at daffodillies.co.uk slash zoinks. That's D-A-F-F-A-D-I-L-L-I-E-S dot co dot uk slash zoinks. Head over there now, dive in, and creep yourself out. And be sure to join us in the comments to share your thoughts and theories. If you want to get in touch, you can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is fearbyzoinks. And you can always email us at zoinks at daffodillies.co.uk. Finally, if you have a moment, we'd love a rating and a review on whichever app you're using. It would really help us out, especially as we're still a new show. That's everything, so... Until next time, stay spooky.